Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. So we're going to read Ecclesiastes 3, uh, verse 16 through 4, 6. It says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Chapter 4. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Early on in human history, we kind of got some signals uh, that we had no idea that these signals would kind of continue uh, and actually get worse. So right after the fall in Genesis 3, it's the first book of the Bible, when sin entered into humanity, God comes to ask kind of a rhetorical question of Adam. He knew the answer, but he was going after him in, in love and mercy. And he approaches Adam to ask him, why did you sin? Why did you eat from the tree? Why did you do that? And Adam does something interesting. He immediately throws his wife, Eve, under the bus. And, and the dialogue is kind of interesting. Adam, or, uh, God comes to Adam to approach him in love. It, what happened? Why, why, why'd you do that? And Adam looks and points to his wife. It was like, that woman who you gave me was the cause of all this. And so the wife of Adam, the one who was the helper and the friend, and the, the companion and the lover, the one who's a gift and a blessing and a partner for all that was to come, in a hot second was thrown to the side uh, to try and get him out of his action. She became not a partner, but a scapegoat. The helper and blessing turned into kind of a hindrance and a curse to him in that moment. And then we track the family down one generation. Surely it gets better. And, and then we see Cain and Abel, brothers, literally flesh and blood. They had their family radically altered as Cain in a fit of anger and envy and rage, uh, bashed his brother with stones until he bled out in the field and died. Flesh and blood was ripped apart and blood was spilled. Let that sit on you for, for a moment. I don't know about your family or how you grew up or if you had brothers and sisters or if you had boys or girls or anything like that. But, it, but in my house, we, we have three boys. They're all spread out in age. And, and we have some rules for the boys. Uh, the first is don't hurt your brother, right? Like first and foremost, like don't do that. 
and protect each other kind of at all costs. And that kind of goes a little bit like this. Hey, don't ever start it. But if someone's trying to hurt your brother, you tell them to stop. And if they don't, you shock and awe them. Like, let them have it. Lower the hammer. I'll be with you. I'll defend you. As long as you didn't start it, if they're trying to hurt your brother, get them. And Judah normally kind of is like, okay, dad. And I don't think he really wants to do it. Abel's like, yes, I'll punch him in the eye hole. Like, he's super excited. I get to hit you, and dad's not going to get mad. And I don't know how Asher is going to respond to this, the youngest one. He'll probably just laugh. I, I, don't, I don't know. But you're meant to protect your brother. I, interesting, we found out um, Matt and Amy live right by me in Alley, just a couple blocks away. And Isaac uh, is on the school bus with the boys now. And he's not a blood brother by any means, but apparently he came home and Isaac told Matt and Amy that Abel, my middle boy, told him, hey, don't worry, if anyone messes with you, me and Judah will bust them. So not only do you protect your physical, like actual blood brother, but your community brother in Christ as well. My boys have extended that. Honestly, I'm quite proud of, of that. But, but why? Why do we do this? Because family is meant to protect each other and love each other. We're meant to look out for each other, to have each other's back. And yet what we saw early on is sin so profoundly broke humanity that it altered all things. The brothers who were supposed to care for each other, one destroyed the other. We get not such a great picture when there's only four humans on the earth at this point. A husband disregards his wife, throws away the reality of her being a gift, and a brother kills his own brother. This was not a banner start to righteousness and justice and love and mercy. And yet, as we look through the the course of human history, um, it doesn't get a whole lot better. Right, maybe the odds are a little different, but from the first four, like those are really bad odds. But, but we see it a ton. We don't treat each other well. And this commentary uh, that we're going to see in the text is the teacher or preacher speaking into what he saw under the sun, specifically regarding this angle of, of how he saw humanity treating humanity when he looked around. The interesting thread seems to to be, or at least something that stood out to me, is in the text last week, the the preacher talked about our inability to control the time or the seasons. God is sovereign all over all things, not us. But moreover, it's not just that we can't control the times and the seasons. He kind of transitions into, you know what? I actually paid attention and we can't control ourselves either. We don't control time. We don't control the seasons. And we surely don't control how we kind of deal with our own lives as it pertains to justice very well. Sin has broken things. And the, the text goes back into some of the heavier feeling elements of the book today as we hear kind of this lament and frustration as he's almost in tears looking over the brokenness over how we treat each other. And then he says this interesting thing in the opening of the text. Man, I looked around and wickedness has, has literally filtered into Everything, even the places that it shouldn't be. Wickedness is filtered into, and sin and injustice have filtered into the places that are supposed to be known for, for justice and righteousness. Even there, it is gone. And he just declares, that is, that is vanity. Like, what is going on here? And there's a hopeful statement there that foreshadows someday it'll be gone. But we're not there yet. We have to walk in the middle of it right now. What's been happening in the book. What exactly is all kind of this dark news about the voice, the the preacher or the teacher who is the 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 the, the main character kind of in this is, is King Solomon, one of the richest, wisest men around. He's making a case that life without God is meaningless 
and foolish. And he's chronicling this heartbreaking cycle that he sees under the sun throughout history that when men and women try and secure their joy and satisfaction or their meaning and peace without the God that created them, it does not go well. Things break. And this isn't a struggle that's you know, on an island or a vacuum that doesn't touch our own lives. When we ourselves here, way, way, way after this text was, was written, when we chase our careers and toys and, and pleasure and accolades and the things that we want over God, things tend to blow up on us as well. They leave us in, in sadness. Now, this book isn't going to be a position paper on why you shouldn't have any effort and you shouldn't have goals and you shouldn't have nice things. It instead is going to be this stark warning, be careful about chasing those things while you ignore God. It'll turn your life into vanity, into fleeting vapor, and, and it'll make you live out of foolishness. What we'll find is there's a personal side to this book. And there's also a corporate side, meaning uh, we've looked at him saying, hey, if you chase desire uh, and pleasure to ultimately fix you and make you happy, it's not going to work out for you individually. And then in the text today, it's going to shift into the, the corporate or kind of societal effects. When groups of people begin to live in a way where, where they together don't acknowledge God, when everyone is carving out their own attempts to, to secure happiness and peace and meaning without gratitude and regard for the Lord, under the sun, what we see is rampant injustice. What we see, is, as Philip Ryken puts it, is we see man's inhumanity towards men. We do not treat each other well when we're looking out for ourselves, trying to carve out meaning for ourselves. But why though? Maybe you're a hopeful optimist, a glass half full, always like to see the good side. The, the, the logic that the preacher is, is, is laying out may be hard for you to, 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 to kind of grasp a hold of. And what he's trying to kind of speak to us here is the reality of a creator. If God has created things in a certain way for us to find meaning and happiness in him and given us commands that kind of foster that, when we ignore that stuff, it's not going to go super well for us. There's a, a quote that I heard that, that stuck out to me. I heard it several years ago, and it was simple and yet profound. And, and it goes a little bit like this. It's, it's very short. It is either Christ or chaos, just period. That's it. He's looking at all things. There's a man named David Lloyd George. I don't know why you give a person three first names, but he had a good quote. All things are either Christ or chaos. And what he meant is something that I agree wholeheartedly. In life and all things under the the sun, all things have two options. Not a, a multitude of options, not neutral options, not a third way. There's only two outcomes for everything under the sun. In our world, things either have Christ as their head and their leader and their king, the image of God as, as their master and leader, or they reject Christ and chaos is the inevitable outcome quite quickly. Two options, Christ or chaos. If you just look and do a case study of our world on how things are run, I think you can actually see there's some pretty solid evidence that that is true. And again, it may seem over the top, but if God created all things, we cannot kick against the the goads and reject the way that he's wired. No matter how loudly we kind of cover our ears and scream, no, 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 I'm going to do what I want. It will break things when you ignore your wiring or the creator that you were meant to find meaning in. You still with me? Okay. Okay. We had a whole lot more if you weren't, so... 
we get a prime example of this in the opening verses of the text. When the teacher looks around, what does he see? He sees chaos. Specifically, he's, he's perplexed that in the places of justice, wickedness has shown up. In, in the place of righteousness, sinful wickedness has, has reared its, its head. And, and we see this as he's looking out under the sun. We see this where we live in our day as well. Men and women are quick to reject the ways of the Lord, and wickedness begins to permeate even in our days, even in the places that righteousness and justice are meant to be. Now, this phenomenon wasn't just in his day. When we look around, we see the exact same thing here in our day, and we can see it in a lot of places that we look, but just three small examples. We see it in our court system. We see it in our government being walked out, and we see it in our schools and our universities when we look Around The places that are meant to be beacons of good and justice and education and protection have, have turned into these kind of hostels for sinful wickedness. Is it all that way? No. But you can see how wickedness has permeated each and every one of those groups. In our court system, we see in our country when we look for it, this type of wickedness all over the place. I remember being in college and hearing a number of young people uh, who all committed the same crime and they all got caught doing it. They were all drinking and driving. They all got DWIs. They were, they were living crazy in college. And, and so they had the exact same crime. And yet the penalties for that crime were drastically different in the different people that I saw, insanely different. What was it that changed the severity of their, their punishments? It was their wealth. It was the amount of money that they had access to because if, if you had access to money, if your mommy and daddy could give you money or you had a whole lot of money, what I saw these kids in college do is they went and got this thing called a DWI lawyer and they threw out a ton of money to him in the court system. They got their charges lessened. They paid ten dollars to $12,000 what would have been 20 years ago. I don't know how much it would be now. And they were able to, because of their financial means, kind of walk away it, to some disregard, to some regard, unscathed. Yes, their pocketbook took a hit, but the penalty for the crime didn't stand over them as much. But then I saw other people without this type of financial means lose their license for a year, have to get high-risk insurance. Their lives were, were greatly changed for 12 to 18 months, while the other person's like, I got money, and they, and they were kind of fine. It shouldn't be this way. The felt consequences for the same crime are very different, and that just depends on how much cash you have. We hear about it all the time. We look around at maybe it's a, a rich person or a connected person or a person of power or a person who's related to a person of power who gets really favor, even though they've done unspeakable things just because of the money that they have or the association that they have. This means in our country, men and women are sitting in jail for the exact same crime that another person is not sitting in jail for, all because of a connection or cash that they have. This isn't a conspiracy theory. This isn't a wives' tale. I'm not going to go into some like libertarian rant after this. We, we just see it. Our country has baked into the system of justice wicked injustices all over the place. Men and women are not treated equally under the wall. Money and power cover many, 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 many evils in our court system. Think about that. The place where justice is meant to rule, right and wrong is meant to be upheld. Guilty men walk free quite often and it's just allowed. And everyone's just like, yeah, it's just kind of the way that it is. 
This is part of what he's lamenting. We have a symbol called Lady Justice of a woman, and this is supposed to signify our court system. You've probably seen it, whether you know what it is or not. But, but it's a statue of a woman, and she's, she's blindfolded, and she has the, the scales uh, of, of justice in her hand, like weight and measure scales in her hand, and she has a sword in the other hand. And it's supposed to be kind of this beautiful picture that justice is handed out without bias and, and without looking at race or power or money or outside influence. It's blind to the, to the person, and that can't influence the scale, and it won't influence the, the, the penalty. But the inside joke that all of us know is lady justice can be paid off. You can put a tip on your side of the scale and things will go well for you. It's just what we see. And this is what he's lamenting over. If, if the place where justice is supposed to be pure, it's unpure, what, what do we have? What's going on? And then in government, I won't go on a long rant or do anything or you don't have to worry about me gearing up for a presidential election. I don't do that. The place that's supposed to give us a framework for freedom the, the, the place that, that, that is supposed to just help us live, politicians on both sides become corrupt and wicked. They're not fighting to protect you and they're not uh, fighting to serve you by any means. Instead, many, not all, but many are, are really uh, instead enslaving us by their corrupt practices and their insane financial stuff, right? That's not serving us. You are really hurting us with what you're doing and that's where we're at. The servants of the people have become servants of themselves, and we all see it. Both sides, equal opportunity. All of them have wickedness. Fighting for their power, they'll promise the world any sinful thing that they can imagine if you'll vote them in. The place that justice and righteousness is supposed to be, wicked is rampant. I don't want to give a bunch of examples because I I believe that you are wise enough that you're like, yeah, I get that one. And then we see it in schools, in universities, and I'll, I'll put like a caveat. This is not all places. We've actually been surprised in Judah school and in public school. We've actually had, we've had some really good situations and people have dealt really well. And like they, they've, they've actually been really great. So I don't want to for a second say that all schools are terrible. And all, I don't mean that at all. But in some places where those kids are meant to be educated, they are instead played with and indoctrinated. Those with power experiment on the kids by teaching them that they need to accept some new way of thinking that they would like that's never been proven and actually isn't grounded in reality. But they, they mess with these kids with these horrific experiments to make them believe and live in things that aren't even true. This is wicked. This is deeply wicked. These children who are still being formed, other people are playing with them like play toys to indoctrinate them with what they want. The preacher is just kind of languishing because everywhere he looks, all these different places, and we could go into tons of examples of places that are supposed to be safe and they're, and they're, and they're not. He's languishing over it. it. shouldn't be this way. What do we do with this? How do we respond to kind of the egregious reality that wickedness has, has stepped into places that it should be off limits? Well, many will start by just not looking at it. Notice in the text, the preacher says, I saw, I saw, I saw. What is he trying to tell you? He cared enough to pick his head up and look around. What was happening in the world around him was important to him. He wasn't just ignoring all the faults of the ward. He wasn't just sugarcoating them all, but he was looking around. Many choose not to do this. And they disengage from reality. And this in and of itself is not a helpful answer. And I, I spent some time kind of thinking about this. There are times when I don't love the news. 
Because I wonder how much our hearts are supposed to be uh, like hit by this barrage of like terrible, 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 terrible all over the world. So there's times like, man, I just kind of pull away from it. This text may be asked the question like, do you pull away too much or you just, it's too heavy and you don't want to see what's in the world around us? There's this kind of balance here. You don't want to bury your head in the sand. You want to kind of see what's, what's happening. I'm not saying that the news is the only place to do that. The other thing that people do is they kind of end up kind of glazing over the world with this plastic sentimental view of all things, where a person kind of places over reality this feeling of what they want to be, the sense of nostalgia, which is actually rejecting what is really there, and the preacher rejects that too. Don't bury your head in the sand, and don't place this like plastic, weird, sentimental view over the top of stuff. Will you look at things for where they are and ask what the Bible would have to say about it? There's a quote that, that I found I, I could not remember who said it? I'd be happy to give him credit. I just can't, I couldn't remember. We said, one of the things I find most compelling about Christianity is that the more I taste of life's hard edges and brutality, the more I discover that the Bible got there before me. It's not a world of fairy tales and make-believe. The Christian faith encourages us to use our eyes to look around at the world uh, the way it is and face it head on uh, and see the facts that are around us. It invites hard thought Hear me, and this is going to go into the next text. The Bible invites you to think uh, well about things, not escape from things. Escapism is never something that you see in the Bible as far as the reality of the world around you. So where does the preacher turn? Because burying your head in the sand isn't good. Placing a, a fake mental view over things isn't good. Where does he turn with the wickedness that he sees in the world to give an answer that will satiate? He turns to the thing that humanity doesn't like to talk about as much the reality that God will judge the righteous and the wicked. When he sees wickedness, he's reminding himself that God will judge it. The problem with the wickedness for the teacher wasn't just the theoretical nature of wickedness. It was that he saw people getting away with wickedness. He saw just this kind of unchecked power of wickedness around the world. How infuriating is it when you see the bad guy who seems to just get away unscathed for doing unspeakable things, and then over and above that, which Ecclesiastes will talk about more, how bad is it when you literally see the wicked person prosper because of your wickedness? Inside, you're like, what in the world? It shouldn't be this way. The point he turns to is, no matter how wrong that feels, and there's a reason it feels wrong, because God has wired the world to work in a different way, but he turns to the reality that no man or woman is actually going to get away with that in the end. God has not been sidestepped. God will not be fooled. God hasn't buried his head in the sand. God will not forget, and God won't take a bribe. All things under the sun will come before the creator and be judged. I find it interesting that he says here that the righteous and the wicked will be judged. Because we may expect, well, he's talking about wickedness. Why doesn't he just say, well, the wicked will be judged? Well, the first reason is most people probably won't admit when they are wicked. It's easy to consider that Hitler was wicked and to say like Putin looks like he's doing some wicked stuff. And so it's easy to point to, to those examples and say that that kind of villainous creature may be wicked. But the preacher says both though. No matter how you see yourself, you will come to judgment. And so will I. 
The wicked and the righteous will all stand before the judgment seat. The message that he's giving is while justice may seem to hit or miss here, it will not eternally because King Jesus will reign and nothing will go unchecked. Nothing. Because that it means that the Bible isn't silent about injustice in the world. The Bible's actually, and this is what has been great about the book of Ecclesiastes, the Bible actually gives the more satisfying answer than any other place in the world. All injustice under the sun will be dealt with. It'll be met by God himself and justice will be handed down. Yes, this justice may take some time to be handed down. But because it takes some time doesn't mean it won't happen. See, many struggle with the time frame. If God is really loving, if God is really kind, then then why wouldn't he bring justice now? But the reason that they do this is they're only looking uh, at the struggle of injustice through an improper lens that doesn't involve their own injustice. So it's easy to declare like, I want justice and to like to scream and yell and like, that's wrong and, and point at the other guy. But then all of a sudden when the microscope gets turned back at us, when it points at the thing in our heart or the pride or the arrogance or the lying or whatever maybe we struggle with, we're like, I don't want justice. I want mercy. And the Bible's going, you can't have universal justice except for mercy for the people that you choose. See, God is not uncaring. God in his mercy is giving time for the people under the sun so that more will come to faith and repent before justice is handed down. God is not flippant. He doesn't forget. This isn't the the watchmaker deist example of the God created and then he walks away because he doesn't love or care about any of you. it's, It's not that. And he's also not flippant to throw temper tantrum. He is patient. He's patient and he's kind. And one day he will act. And to those who have been hurt and wounded and will all suffer in some way, he will wipe away your tears and he'll hand judgment down to those who have rejected him and been unjust. Every knee will bow in worship when justice is handed down in wrath. The preacher makes this statement that God is testing the children of man. If you read this text at all before, you're like, this is an interesting section. So he's testing the the children of man, showing that they become like beasts, like, like animals. He says, ultimately, we breathe the same air and we go to the same place. We're all going to the dirt. Everyone dies, all of us. When it's all said and done, we're all going back into the ground. When the, when the preacher says it's no advantage, uh, or humanity has no advantage over the beast, what he's saying is that you can't cheat death just like they can't. Everyone will die at one point, all things. Remember, the preacher still wants us to view life in light of eternity and judgment. This is a big deal. Uh, Ecclesiastes wants us to embrace and live out of the reality that most of us do a a pretty intentional job trying to go, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about it. I want to think about it. He goes, but you need to. It needs to be the, the lens that you view your life and things around you in. The third chapter ends with an interesting, almost baited line of reasoning. And he says this differently than he said it before. Because before we heard, man, it's a beautiful gift to be content to eat and drink and have a good time and enjoy your loved ones and, and to be grateful and worship. But, it, but in this one, he, he says, there's nothing better than for a man just to rejoice in his work. That seems a little odd compared to what he said before. 
And he says, you know, who knows? Who knows if men have a different destiny than animals ultimately, so you might as well rejoice in what you can have and, and work hard because, you know, who knows where you're going to go after you die? Who knows? Hopefully something about that doesn't set right. You're like, wait, why, why, do, you, why do you say that? This section is likely, likely written in Solomon's wild days. Solomon, remember we talked about in the second text, Solomon had a, a large period of his life where he chased work and pleasure and toil and what he could get because he goes, I'm going to test this thing and see if I can have a great life without you, God. And he went crazy after it. Likely this was written in those days. But it's left here to kind of give us this aha moment. We aren't beasts. Yes, we breathe the same air. Yes, we're all going to die. God is not going to judge the lions, the elks, and your dog or your cat, though to judge those who are made in the image of God, the Imago Dei, with the capacity of good and evil, those that Christ died on the cross so that they could be redeemed. Those who are the children of God, then they actually do know their end. Right? He asked this kind of rhetorical question, like, who knows? You're like, we know. If we follow Jesus, like, I, I do know. I hang my hat on knowing. Psalm forty-nine, fifteen. but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. He will receive me. John 14, one through three, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. Ephesians 2, four through seven, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here it is. So that in the coming ages, he may show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We could do this over and over again. And Jesus on the cross says next to the criminal hung next to him who pleads out for mercy, hey, you're gonna be with me in paradise tonight. It is not uncertain where the children of God end up. The the children of man and the ones that reject God, they may struggle. But those who are sons and daughters have a promise of redemption, that God will save their souls and eternity will be secure. The people in the Old Testament knew this. They didn't know as much about how it would work out, but we have the New Testament in our hands and a wealth of scriptures that point out clearly that death isn't the end because Christ has defeated it. To where death isn't the final word. Redemption is for those in Christ. Just a little thought. That's a good place for an amen. Cool. So why are we those who don't live for our work and act like beasts and treat each other like beasts? Because there's more than, to life than what we see under the sun. One day there'll be a restored creation, a future inheritance. Paul talked about this. I consider now the suffering of the the current day not worthy of comparison to the the glory that God has for me in in my inheritance, meaning all the wickedness and the tears and the pain of the present age will fade to the rear view as they are completely eclipsed by the glory. Paul's going, you can't imagine what he has for you, and neither can I. The teacher talks about the other side of the wickedness that he saw. Under the sun, those with power are consistently, not all the time and everyone with it, 
Those with power are consistently oppressing those without it. There's a, if we can sidestep into like a timeout, there's a lot of people right now in kind of a victimized culture who anyone with power is a villain. The Bible doesn't say that anywhere. But it does say there's a consistent habit of people with power that some of them will be oppressors. We see it everywhere that we look, this oppression of those without power. See it? Genocide, terrorism, slavery, one of the most horrific ones that, that's very interesting that the media had a very big problem with people talking about all of a sudden. Sex trafficking, street children. These are giant examples of massive oppression. We have it all over the place. But then we have it in regular examples that, that we see that are even on the streets of our, of, of, of our own city. We, we, we see this type of oppression in payday loans when people don't have access to a whole lot of money. So other people with more money put the screws to people to, to hurt them and make a ton of money. We see it in Planned Parenthood where these systems in people feed off the weak or the needy or those who are in vulnerable situations. The lament of the preacher is that he sees the oppressed All they seem to get, he says, is just tears. You, you got to like wrestle with that for a second because you can't let that go by. He's, he's struggling with these people. But there's no fix and there's no way out and there's no plan out. And he says, their only comfort is their tears. What comfort are your tears? Not a lot. Well, I got it out. It still didn't fix your situation. Not a lot. But he says something interesting though. So he's talking about the, the oppressed. But then he talks about the oppressors as well, which is surprising. He says the oppressors have no comfort. Many of us are like, who cares about them? Well, the Bible does. There's no answer to the fix that, that they're struggling with either. Where is the good news for both of these people groups? Where is the, the answer for the, for the injustice? This is the part that I love. The gospel, again, is the most satisfying answer because the gospel is the only good news for both groups. To the oppressed, we now get to look at the life and ministry of Jesus himself. Jesus was tried in a sham trial by the cover of night. He was convicted not rightfully, right? It was a law in those days that there had to be cooperating evidence and they couldn't get any of that. He was convicted in a sham trial for things he didn't actually do and he was sentenced to death by the people of power. He was in that form oppressed by the people of power. Christ, the lamb of God, the savior king who could have crushed them all was oppressed, beaten brutally, hung naked. When you think of oppression and power over someone without power, beaten and hung on a cross without clothes. The Roman government was in charge of oppressing people because they wanted to scare them. He was oppressed. He received scorn. Then they mocked him and put the crown of thorns in this sign like, hey, look at you, king. Look at what you're, they're, they're mocking him. He paid the price for sins that he did not commit. And he did it willingly. Christ knows what it's like to taste tears of anxiety and fear because of people with power coming down on you. He knows what it's like. He knows a lot that the world is unfair and unjust. That's why he made a promise to redeem it. To the oppressed, the offer is a promise that your oppression will one day turn to glory. All the tears that we cried, we, we just can't say it enough. The Lord will wipe them away. What is it going to look like? I don't know, but I think it'd be awesome. He's telling us in the, the word, there's an expiration date on your pain and suffering, it will be 
done at some point. But then look at the other angle, the oppressor. We are not making a case that the oppressor is the victim by any means, but ultimately, even in the uh, oppressor's shoes is the situation of, of sorrow or plight. They oppress because they're chasing two handfuls of wind. They're seeking meaning, and no matter how much they sprint or how fast they go, they cannot get the comfort that they're seeking. In, in the example for the first sermon, no, no matter how many cans of peaches to try and gratify themselves that they grab, it's not working, and there's more and more and more sorrow. How can the heart of the oppressor be healed and comforted? Well, the gospel gives them a new heart. That's how. A new heart. The gospel is that the son of God came for the sick, not the healthy. So we have this idea like, well, what about the little guy? Well, the gospel talks a lot. I came for all who are broken, all who have need. I have, I have come for those in need. I've come for the oppressed and the oppressor to make all things new and redeem all things for those who would follow me. What will stop oppression in its tracks? Oppressors bowing to King Jesus with a new heart and a new way to live. Oppressors finding Jesus and the gospel just much better and more satisfying than chasing the wind. The oppressor becoming a new creation that no longer needs to oppress. For the oppressors who refuse to follow King Jesus, they will face King Jesus and they will not receive mercy. Judgment will stand and ultimately judgment eternally will not be tainted. The, the, the heavenly court system of God will hand out perfect justice because he is perfect. One of my hopes is that the gospel would embolden us to live in a way that that can happen is I feel like in the last five years, the world is trying to get believers on their heels more than ever before. You're a fool, wrong side of history. You're an idiot. Like all of these things to, to press you into this fearful position on your heels and scared. The gospel just helps us though. As many fear tactics as we see, they still don't have a satisfying answer for injustice. There's none. The gospel is though. See what the world says, every, uh, everything that we see in the world is my guy will fix it. My thoughts will fix it. My politician will, will fix it. You're gonna hear this all the time as the elections get ramping up. This person will fix it. This person will give us a better day. This new idea, this social push, this promise, this will satisfy, this will fix. And yet all of them are vanity. They'll never work. They will never ever do anything. The best, the best one of them could ever be is a short-term Band-Aid that'll ultimately not actually fix the wound. But the gospel is not like that. Others can reject it all day long, but I want you to be emboldened. It's the only satisfying answer. God will judge. Nothing will be let go. Righteousness will reign. The darkness and, and even the hardness of our hearts are like, what is going on? There's a day that that won't be, it won't be there anymore. That angst of a broken world and a broken creation will be gone. It'll be replaced with worship and awe and glory. Man, that's gonna be a good day. The last verse of the text supply us with three ways to live and walk. These are responses to the problems that we've seen in light of injustice and oppression, and also in light of, of people who kind of live out of envy and what they want in the world and having that dictate their lives. The preacher asserts, here's the three ways that you can live. 
We can be those who fold our hands and eat our flesh, one. We can strive for two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. Or we can have one handful of quietness and, and one handful of toil and wind. What does this mean? The preacher's already told us that, man, this life is about God. No matter how much the world tries to erase him, this life is about God, enjoying him, being satisfied in him. And then the, one of the hopeful things that Ecclesiastes gives to our heart is the Lord wants you to enjoy the good things that he puts in your hands. He wants you to rejoice with the gifts that you have without living for them so that they crush you. This is not a mean father. This is a gracious heavenly father. But some won't do that. They're not gonna strive for anything in their life. See, they won't enjoy the gifts that God has and the gifts that they've been made available to them because the text says they're gonna fold their hands like this and they're not going to reach out and try and grasp a hold of anything in their lives. This person is likely a sloth with no zeal and no drive at all. What it's saying is they're gonna miss out on many of the blessings of God because they're too lazy to actually try and reach out for any of them. Here's the interesting thing. They'll probably wear it as a badge of courage. I'm just content and satisfied. No, you're lazy and you're slothful, and the Lord's called you to enjoy and reach. And there's, remember, there's seasons for sowing and seasons for harvest, and you don't ever want to sow. What he says about this person is this lazy person, the idea that he gives us too, is he doesn't just say there's two empty hands. He says the hands are crossed. It's the Bible's way of saying you're not only lazy, you're a scoffer. You're bitter, you mock other people. You think you're better than other people. You whine. You say that you're oppressed. You're not oppressed. You're lazy and you're bitter. The Bible has a lot of really, really rough things to say about the lazy scoffer. Be careful, he says. The other extreme, though, right? You have the person, hey, you can't even enjoy the gifts of God because you're just not doing anything. Polar swing the opposite way is the guy who has two hands full of toil. Right? I'll take mine and I'll take theirs and anyone else's. I, I, I'm filling my hands as full as, as I can go. I imagine like the stereotypical example of the guy who only wants to make one trip in uh, from the grocery store and you're like weighed down by a million things. That's this guy. I want as many things as my arms as I can take before I break. This is the person who gives everything to maybe their work or their pursuits or what they want. They prioritize life by what they can get done, what they can make happen, or the thing that they really want to feel or do. This can be the overly driven person, but it doesn't have to be. It's just the person who isn't satisfied ever. The interesting part of this is nobody thinks this is them though. You know how many pastors I've talked to and said, I've never had a person say that they have a problem with, 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 with envy and, 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 and they want stuff too much. Right? That, that, that's, that's, that's not a sin that most people confess because most people don't believe it's them. The person with two handfuls of toil, they, like the other one, they actually wear it as a bag, badge of courage. I'm driven. I'm responsible. I'm type A. I'm hardworking. Work hard, play hard. They hide their idolatry behind the word of drive. Really just the need for more fuels them. 
They're not always rich with a ton of stuff, but I'm just not satisfied. It manifests in dissatisfaction. I heard an example that my friend, Pastor uh, Justin Dean in the Quad Cities told about this. And I, I found it helpful. I'm not gonna like write a letter about tithing after this. So I'm like, hear that and you'll make sense. But so do you know how many rich men I've had come to me and tell me why they can't tithe? Tithe is the biblical procedure, like 10%-ish, right? 10%, it's not ish, just 10%. Um, so I've had so many rich and wealthy men sit in front of me and just go, I can't do that type of percentage. It's too much money. Like, do you know how much I've done? Do you, like, do you know how much that would be? Do, do, do you really, that's so much. It's too much. It's more than, than, than I can give. And, and for them, there's this struggle for regular sacrificialness because of the amount of how high it is. And then he said, do you know how many other people, whether it's the young person who isn't rich or just the person who, who, who maybe has an entry-level job, maybe they just don't have a lot, whatever it is. And they'll say, I just can't be faithful in my tithing because I just don't have enough. They're both the two hands full of toil person. One's just rich. Because the mindset is a regular level of sacrificialness peels away my fingers and takes some of the hard-earned toil from me. And I'm afraid that my life won't be as meaningful or good or if I don't have that thing, so I can't give it. It's, it, it's too much. Do you realize how much that would be because of how much that I have? Or do you realize I just don't have very much, so I can't, like, I don't have very much, so I can't give anything? It's the same heart. What governs this person's decision of their time and their calendar and their yes and their no and their sacrifices, whether they can stomach losing something that they think will complete them or make their life better. It's too much to give. Whether you're rich or whether you're poor, I work so hard for that toil. I need that toil. The third option is to be the one who has a handful of quiet and the inference is, and the other hand's full of toil. Their hands are full of what it can lay a hold of in the world. What this shows is the life that is properly driven and motivated. Remember, no drive, no motivation, lazy scoffer, no bueno. Overly driven, chasing everything, running crazy after the wind, also not good. But then there's a proper side to where a person wants to work and have and enjoy and strive and they're good with seasons of, of sowing and sweat of their, their brow and, and, and they got some nice stuff and they, like, they enjoy properly the things in the world, but it's okay that both of their hands aren't full because they're worshipful and thankful for what the Lord has given them. They've, they've worked hard, they've done good things, but they've balanced drive and gratitude. That's, that's a whole thing he's trying to say. Can you balance? Has the gospel changed your heart enough to where you have a balanced life between drive and gratitude that frees you from being trapped into the slavery of the vapor that you think you're acquiring and fixing your life with? This person can earn and save and buy and enjoy and have a good time and vacations and, and, and do stuff. And they can also leave a hand open because they're not mastered by stuff. What is the only thing that can heal the oppressed and the oppressor? What's the only thing that can free us from the world's obsession with toil? It's the heart change that only comes through Jesus. It's this big ta-da. This allows you to enjoy the world properly and not be mastered by it or owned by it. 
because your master, King Jesus, has set you free from chasing the wind like a psychopath. You have been set free from the hysteria of getting the most toys before you die. And now you can enjoy the world. See, if you don't do this, again, the oppressed and the oppressors, if the gospel hasn't done in this in you, then what we tend to do, whether we realize it or not, we treat other people is you help me get more toil that I want or you hurt me get more toil that I want. So I'll either approve of you or reject you or spend time with you or not based on do you help me get what I want? It says King Jesus frees you from that where you have a balance between pursuit and pause and do some alliteration, work and worship, sowing and Sabbath. There's a balance in your life. God is not saying you need to be a martyr and have no things and end up with nothing. And if you have a nice car and haven't given it all away that you don't really love Jesus. No, it's not what it's saying. Just balance it. Is there balance where you can have things and not be mastered by them? The play for a text like this probably isn't to stand up and yell, boo, I hate injustice too. The play is to take an open look at our hearts and our lives right now and just ask, hey, which one are you in? Seasonally, what we have to understand too is they can change on us. Do we have, because of the gospel and the confidence in Jesus, because it is his righteousness and not ours only, do we, do we have the bravery to look at our life and see what our hands are looking like in this example? Are we striving for nothing with arms crossed and we've kind of gotten bitter and we've kind of got mad and we've been wearing it as a badge of courage and saying that we're content and the Lord's going, hey man, I've asked you to get up. I got some stuff for you to do and we need to repent and say, I will go out and I'll enjoy the world that you asked me to. Is that where you're at? Your hand's been just crossed. And he's going, hey, son or daughter, get up. Or are we overextending ourselves, always reaching for more? always dealing with this lack of satisfaction and lack of contentment. It points at different things and maybe it looks different ways and you've called it driven. But maybe the Lord's just pressing on your heart going like, hey man, it hasn't worked. Do you want to stop? Do you want to repent? Do you want to stop? And the, the, the play for that would be repentance. Father, help me. I don't know how to stop that. I, I I don't know what it looks like. Will you help free me more from the wrong pursuit of too much toil, knowing it's not going to do me any good? A promise from the teacher is if you do that, you may have less junk, but you actually will have more satisfaction. It's counterintuitive to what the world tells us. But would the Lord be drawing you towards repentance of that? to kind of remold some of your habits and your yeses and your noes. And the third spot, the Lord's been working and has already kind of loosened your hand off of the chasing of chaos and wind, and he's brought you in just a more content place that you've been, celebrating gratitude. Man, there was a day when I had to work more and do more and I had to have more. And man, I just, I'm just more happy. And like, I'm okay with what's in my hands. And man, thank you. Is a proper disposition to repent and lament at times. Also celebrate and thank. God, thank you for that. I didn't do that. It wasn't the wisdom that mommy and daddy gave me that did that. You freed me from the slavery of only chasing the wind. Thank you for your good gift. Thank you for your kindness. And as we kind of approach these three ways of life, then we're gonna worship at the end and take communion today. And what are we doing? We're remembering that 
That is only Christ that delivers this promise to us. What frees you from the chasing of a wind with, with two hands and ending up with nothing? It's that Christ has come and paid for the ultimate need that you have. The beauty for us is if we've been chasing too much, there's still a sacrifice for you. He goes, I, I knew that you're going to do that and I paid for it. Now, return to me. My body and blood is still there for you. My body was broken. My, my blood is shed to, to cover that. Now, now come back. You get to come to the table and remember. If, if, if you've been in the scoffer position and not gone for much, you're like, man, I wonder if this like changes my identity and if God really loves it. The body and the blood is for you as well. Come, repent, stand up. Let him kind of curb and change some of your, your actions later, but come and take and see that he is good. And for those who get to rejoice that maybe the Lord's just done a good work in that, same disposition. The body and the blood is what has done this. I'm so thankful for your kindness. I couldn't have straightened any of this out. And you've worked and you've freed me and you've loved me and you are kind and you're good. Would we be those who would come to the table thoughtfully? And here's my, my thing. I don't, anyone can take, if, you don't have to be a member here. You just your faith needs to be in Jesus. I would say it's an important thing though. If the Lord is convicting you today about the amount of chasing that you're doing, I would be very leery over going to the table while ignoring that though. The table's free to come and to have. But if the Lord is speaking to you would, you, would you wrestle with that before you come? Maybe he wants to do a good work in you and free you more. It would be a shame if the Spirit was kind enough to draw us and lead us to forgiveness. I'm like, yeah, 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 I'm good, and just went and didn't think about it. So we're trying to give times of response and stretch out some time where you can pray, do business with the Lord, and, and wrestle with him appropriately. Band, you guys can come back up. I would remind you that we have tried to be content with the reality of this is wisdom literature. It hits different. What he's gonna do is gonna add these nuggets to our lives and what you get to do is decide do you accept it or reject it? Now this one, it's, it's hey, you can kind of see are these three ways of life, which one are you in? There's a little bit more application to this than some of the others, but it was different with the time and the seasons and some of the other ones. So as each nugget gets dropped off on us through the book of Ecclesiastes, the hope is that we would pray, Holy Spirit, let me see the world and myself clearly. Would you make me wise, not so that I boast, but so I can live a life well and be celebratory of what you've given and I can worship you well. That's what this wisdom is about, to free you and not to hurt you. You can stand with me. First um, Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he is betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, that's what we are doing in worship, trying to give you the, the best way that we can love you in leadership is to give you the margin to wrestle with the Lord with his words and then give you the ability to come to the table in thankfulness for what the Lord has done after you've just kind of responded to him. Would we be a people who are, are those who do business with the Lord, who pray and, and ask him, hey, hey will, you, will you help me see the parts of my heart that I'm not? We worship in gratitude and thankfulness and we come and feast off of the table that Jesus has done a good work that is there for us.